Welcome to Stats and Stories, a partnership between the Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film at Miami University, supported by the American Statistical Association. I'm Rosemary Pennington, joined in the studio with my co-panelist, John Baylor, as always. And John, why are we standing up to do the podcast today? You know, I, I'm sure that they can't see us, so we have to tell them, don't we? I mean, that's sort of the, that's, that's why I asked. That's why you asked. Well, you know, I'm, I'm slow on the uptake. <laughs> well, well, Rosemary, you know, the, after all the years of doing the podcast together, we, we decided to write a book that pursued our interest in the statistics behind the headlines. That's right. And you are lucky in that today's episode is actually a chapter from that book. It's chapter five. John and I have read it. We are not professional audiobook readers, so I just would like you to please uh, forgive us for these transgressions. (laughs) And we do hope that you will enjoy this. This has been, the podcast and the book has been a labor of love for the two of us. And and we're delighted to be able to share a portion of it with you today. Yes. And depending on how you guys feel about this chapter, another one might be in the pike sometime soon. Uh, And before we start the episode, I do want to remind you that our data viz competition is still going on. You can go to the website, statsandstories.net and find out about it. But we have made data about the podcast available to you to use for free to download. And what we're asking is that you crunch those numbers and create a data visualization that tells a story about the show. Yeah, we're we're really excited to see the kind of of insights that that you will glean from some of the data. Again, it's statsandstories.net slash contest will get you directly to the link for the data and also a description of the contest itself. And that deadline has been extended for the contest to July 5th. So get those uh, dashboards and visualizations in. The winner eventually will get a copy of Statistics Behind the Headline. And here is Chapter 5. Chapter 5, Investigating Series Binge-Watching. What happens to your brain when you binge-watch a TV series? November 4th, 2017, by Danielle Page, NBC News. Story Summary. Before the advent of video streaming services, if you wanted to binge watch a TV show, you had to wait until a channel decided to run a marathon of episodes, often in the lead up to the series finale. Netflix changed all that, and binge watching is now something that people do regularly. But as with all media consumption, there has been a growing interest in just what all that binge watching does to us. That's the question at the heart of this NBC News story. Reporter Danielle Page brings together a number of different sources to explain the different ways binge-watching might affect us, cognitively and emotionally. In the story, she details how binge-watching can make us feel good, and why that is. She then describes how the activity can actually help to alleviate stress, but also points out that there can be a bit of a letdown once you burn through all the episodes. The story wraps up with some pointers on how to binge-watch responsibly. What ideas will you encounter in this chapter? Multiple data sources may provide the foundation of many stories. Different data sources provide different types and amounts of information. Quotes from experts are not the same thing as a systematic study or review of evidence. Currency and novelty can drive news coverage of research. What is claimed? Is it appropriate? Brain chemistry changes, psychological responses, and stress reduction can be associated with binge-watching television. However, the story also cautions the audience against binging to the exclusion of human interaction, and recommendations about responsible binging are provided. 
Ultimately, more than one claim is discussed in this story. Who is claiming this? This story focused on health impacts associated with media consumption, and the writer of the NBC News piece integrates disparate sources of evidence in support of viewing habits and outcomes. Why is it claimed? The consumption of television programs has been forever changed with the introduction of streaming services that allow you to view seasons worth of programming in a matter of days. Though it should be noted some streaming services are experimenting with uploading new episodes weekly rather than all at once, notable examples include Hulu's release schedule for The Handmaid's Tale and Disney Plus's handling of its three Marvel series. Even with a trickling of the release of new episodes, you still have the option to wait until all episodes are released and then watch them in one sitting. One of the affordances of a streaming service is that it can be done on a variety of platforms, ranging from smartphones to tablets to computers to the old viewing standard, television. Whereas before, audiences were at the mercy of network and cable TV stations and could only watch a show on one medium, the TV. The new story touches on the impact of a leisure behavior that is rapidly changing in society. While this story preceded the social distancing associated with pandemic concerns, it feels even more appropriate now than when the story first appeared in 2017. Typical television consumption and binge-watching behavior provided the foundation for the story. The story then considered drivers of binge-watching along with explanations for the behavior. Claims included that binge-watching a series provides rewards that are reflected in brain chemistry and psychological responses. The story closed with a caution about binging to the exclusion of social interaction with real humans. The story begins with a U.S. government survey that characterizes how Americans spend their time. Spoiler alert, the average American spends 2.7 hours watching a day. And a corporate survey by Netflix that characterizes binge-watching behavior. Another spoiler alert, 61% of survey respondents watch two to six episodes of a series when they sit down to watch. The story then explores possible explanations for binging, including physiological reasons, dopamine levels and lighting up pleasure centers of your brain, and psychological reasons, identification and ways we interact with shows and characters on shows, stress reduction and connecting with others who obsess about the same series are also offered up as possible explanations. These explorations of the consequences of binge-watching were based on interviews with clinical psychologists and psychiatrists and a study of binge-watchers presented at an American Public Health Association conference. Is this a good measure of impact? Hours of television watching, a leisure activity quantified in the American Time Use Survey, ATUS to its friends, seems like an appropriate endpoint of interaction with the medium. An interesting question is if, when, the ATUS expanded its definition of television watching to include streaming series from vendors such as Netflix and Hulu. The binge-watching scale described below was a simple split of the time spent viewing a series each day. However, the impacts of these behaviors are not clearly evaluated. How is the claim supported? The claims regarding the impact of binge-watching TV shows are primarily supported by interviews with psychologists and a link to a presentation at a scientific meeting. 
Systematic studies of the impact of binge-watching series are not cited, except for the results of a voluntary response survey that was presented at a professional conference. Assuming the experts quoted in the story are familiar and current with research related to the impacts of binge-watching, then their opinions might be viewed as informed and useful. What evidence is reported? As noted previously, interviews with experts and a scientific presentation are the foundation of much of this story. Background about the patterns of television watching and binging behavior was determined by a government and an industry survey, respectively. Reading Research Behind Stories there is a hierarchy of information in stories. Probability sample surveys and designed experiments are most likely to be representative and valid, while convenient samples and expert opinions may be neither representative nor valid. How much television do you watch? Government survey says, What do Americans do on an average day? How much time do Americans spend at work? doing household chores, or enjoying leisure activities like watching TV. The American Time Use Survey is a standard data source for understanding and characterizing the behavior of the free-range American, age 15 and older. This survey was started in 2003 and generates annual estimates from monthly samples that are collected throughout the year. Participants are selected as follows. Start with the current population survey a monthly survey of the U.S. labor force household, and then select an ATUS household, and then randomly choose one individual aged 15 or older, and then call this individual to get responses. The randomly selected individual is assigned a day, Monday through Sunday, to report their activity during a 24-hour window the day before the call. Here, a call on Friday would review the activity from 4 a.m. Thursday through 4 a.m. Friday, the day of the call. The survey methodology section lays out all of those details, including how often a household is called to get an interview, eight consecutive weeks, to how surveys were conducted, computer-assisted telephone interview, to how activity descriptions were coded, six-digit code from the ATUS coding lexicon. They then have to determine the rules for coding complex combinations of behaviors. For example, suppose you're listening to an audiobook while walking your dog. Is this reading or exercise or both? Or can one be considered a primary activity and the other a secondary activity? ATUS coders use a set of rules to figure this out. After the data are collected and coded, the data have further processing that includes making informed guesses for missing data and imputing non-responses for items and weighting responses from each quarter to produce population estimates that are less biased. Even after all that work, the sources of error are discussed. Sampling error reflects that different samples that are selected from the same population will differ. This is the error that you encounter in intro stat classes. Non-sampling error reflects systematic differences between sample estimates and the population value that might arise from non-sampling part of population or non-response by some sampled individuals or data processing errors. The only result of this survey included in this story was that the reported average amount of TV watched, which was 2.8 hours per day, it was also the leisure activity most enjoyed by respondents. 
The careful listener may notice that 2.7 hours per day was reported earlier in this chapter and 2.8 hours per day was reported here. The 2.8 hour per day average was based on the most recent ATUS results, while 2.7 hour per day was based on the ATUS results when the story was published. Questions you might consider if you were to explore this issue further include, what was the second most common leisure activity in the United States? What might similar time use surveys in other countries tell you about non-US centric leisure activities? Reading research. Coding categories of responses is a difficult task and the best research establishes precise rules for such assignments. Reading research. Sampling variability is captured in the margin of error estimates in survey research. Are you a binge watcher? Industry report says, Netflix is an online service provider that primarily streams video entertainment. But not only does Netflix stream entertainment, it also collects data on what entertainment is being consumed and how people consume it. From the methodology section of the Netflix survey discussed in the NBC News story, we learn from viewers residing in 190 countries during a window of time between October 2015 and May 2016 were analyzed. The flow of how a Netflix subscriber became part of the pool of people whose viewing habits helped define binging was, take all Netflix programs and all Netflix consumers members, and then select 100 series that are potentially bingeable, and then select consumers who watched all of the first season of a series. Data collected and analyzed for these individuals include days and hours to complete the series. It wasn't clear if a member completed more than one series if they would be included more than once in the data. The number of individuals who contributed data to this analysis also wasn't reported. It is worth noting that someone who binge watches on another streaming service or digital video recorders, DVRs, all episodes of a series for later binge viewing would not be counted here. Does the population of Netflix viewers look similar to these other groups? Do these Netflixers look similar to the population characterized by the ATUS? Reading research. It is fair to ask why a study was conducted. This was produced by the Netflix Media Center, and while it summarized some viewing behaviors, almost half of the report was devoted to listing the series that might be binged. The analysis reported that 50% of the viewers who completed watching a series spent two hours and 10 minutes or less per session, and further, 50% of viewers completed the series in five days or less. Interesting that this was per session. Can you imagine a problem if this was defined as per day? If someone started watching at 11 p.m. and finished watching at 1 a.m. the next day, then this would contribute two hours to a session of watching, but one hour to two different days. The report then defined the binge scale as savored, view less than two hours a day, or devoured, view more than two hours per day. So what if you watch exactly two hours per day? Probably not likely to see someone viewing exactly two hours per day since viewing habits were likely recorded to a millisecond. It is reasonable to assume that a computer was measuring this viewing time. This report did not claim to be a scientific paper and you shouldn't expect it to be. While some background for the study was provided, there was a lot of information that would have been interesting to see. For example, how many people were studied? 
Which series were consumed the fastest? What are the differences between countries? You might expect that much of this is analyzed by Netflix. Would this analysis be viewed as proprietary in Netflix and thought to be important for business? What was the distribution of time to complete viewing each series? Don't be happy with only a reported measure of a central value, such as a mean or a median from an analysis. A good summary will always include a measure of variability or a distribution of responses along with a summary of a central value. Is watching lots of TV good, bad, or both for you? Experts say... Scientific research is published in journals and presented at professional conferences. This research involves the systematic investigation into hypotheses about the possible relationship between some exposure or behavior, example, binge watching a TV series, and some response, for example, stress, depression. Experts who are trained to treat people for particular kinds of behavior, say stress, depression, or addiction, are not necessarily researchers. The psychologists and psychiatrists quoted in this story may be outstanding practitioners and therapists. However, you can't know whether they're speaking from a review of a literature in the field or if they're speaking from their specific years of experience treating a broad spectrum of patients. These experts provide potential explanations for why people binge watch. They describe possible benefits and they describe the potential costs associated with binge watching behavior. It's all useful information, but knowing whether these reflections are based on an anecdote or on research would be helpful as we decide how much we want to trust their insights. An explanation or quote doesn't equate to a summary of the evidence in support of the explanation. It might. We can hope that a journalist confirmed this as part of the background work for the story, but we can't tell from the story. Critically reading stories. Experts can provide great quotes, but are they an expert in the area discussed? And do they have the evidence in support of their assertions? Binging and stress. Scientific presentation says, a research study was cited in the news story to describe what happens after you finish binge-watching a series. Researchers from the University of Toledo presented at the 2015 meetings of the American Public Health Association. They described a study that involved more than 400 survey respondents. Participant data was collected using Amazon's Mechanical Turk or mTurk, mturk.com. This is an online system where people can volunteer to participate in a research study for some small amount of compensation. The University of Toledo researchers used mTurk to take a cross-sectional look at what people report in terms of viewing habits and stress, as well as other characteristics that might impact viewing behaviors, such as age and economic status. Three issues that come immediately to mind. One. Respondents represent a sample, but from what population? The population of people interested in online research using Mechanical Turk? These are volunteers and may or may not represent a population of interest or relevance to you. Two, respondents self-reported their binging behavior. Does this mean that people might have very different definitions of a show viewing binge? Absolutely. Three, the study was cross-sectional. Cross-sectional means that all variables, including responses, e.g. stress, and potential predictors, e.g. binging, are measured at the same time. Can you say if binge-watching results in higher levels of stress or if higher levels of stress result in binge-watching? 
A formal study would be needed to disentangle the direction of this relationship or to understand if both stress and binge watching were caused by some other factor. For example, would someone who felt socially isolated be more likely to binge and to feel stress? Reading research. A standard and uniform definition of response categories will increase confidence that respondents are answering the same question. The researchers acknowledge these limitations and emphasize that this study was exploratory and that the results needed to be confirmed with future study. The story did not capture any of the nuance or the limitations identified by the researchers. What is the quality or strength of the evidence? There really wasn't any evidence reported to support the claims of the psychological and physiological benefits of binge watching or the downsides of binge watching. Quotes from experts without some link to an evidence base are not convincing. Is the claim reasonable in itself? Does prior belief impact my belief? Confirmation bias? Now you have watched the complete first season of a show or two and have been classified as someone who savored a series. We bet that your prior belief was that becoming a series-binging zombie is probably not healthy. Expert quotes generally supported this belief. However, as noted above, a quote from an expert or two should not sway you to take one position or another. This does not mean that binging is without either benefits or costs, simply that there is not enough here to get a good sense one way or the other. A quick search of the scholarly literature would be useful if you felt driven to see what systematic studies of the impact of binge-watching have been conducted and what was learned from them. Learning more. Searches in web browsers can be a good way to find other projects related to some research problem. For example, a search for binge-watching addiction on scholar.google.com yielded 14,900 hits. Reading research. Consider where the research was published. Journals with connections to professional scientific societies likely merit more attention. How does this claim fit with what is already known? This question was not answered by the story, nor by the background materials cited in the story. A quick search of health effects associated with television viewing habits provides links such as obesity being a possible outcome, but other outcomes are possible. Investigating the background of a study can easily morph into a research question which spurs a whole new study. How much does this matter to me? This story led us to reflect on our own viewing habits and to compare our viewing habits with those reported in the ATUS and Netflix reports, along with personal reactions to consuming a series. We don't have a strong reaction to the claims that were based on expert interviews, as our fear is that it may be possible to find an expert to express a particular opinion that runs counter to the scientific consensus. We are not saying this happened here, but we cannot be convinced by the assertions of the experts quoted in the NBC News story. There are a lot of questions that surfaced and remain after reading this. What other factors drive binge-watching? Could an experiment be designed to randomize binge-watching to a group of viewers and non-binge-watching to another group, and then observe the difference in stress responses or other physiological and psychological responses? Considering the coverage, we've talked a bit about some of the holes we could poke in the NBC News article about binge-watching, but what we haven't discussed is what would make a news outlet want to cover this particular story anyway. 
In another chapter, we discuss the concept of news values, those things that propel news media to cover a story. Among them are timeliness, impact, and proximity. Two at play in this story are less discussed, but often quite powerful, currency and novelty. You've likely heard the phrase Netflix and chill, though it's perhaps becoming dated at this point. But it did have its moment as it seemed as though everyone was obsessed with some show on Netflix or any of the other streaming sites. The ubiquity of that phrase seemed to signal that the concept of binge-watching had some currency. In a journalistic sense, the currency is the idea that something you report on is at the top of the mind of the public. Netflix and chill would suggest binge-watching was a public concern. Novelty enters the scene as the ability to binge-watch a series, as mentioned, is a relatively new thing. The currency and novelty of this story may translate into clickbait that induces casual readers to follow up on this headline and the quick summary of the story. Uses and gratifications is a communication theory that assumes audiences are not passive consumers of media, but rather active users of media. It makes room for both agency and choice when it comes to media use and its effects, which theories of direct effects did not always do. There is a long concern in media and communication studies about the way that media consumption affects us. Early theories imagined that media had direct effects on users, that a producer could create a message, publish, or broadcast it, and we would just take it in without really thinking too much about it. Other theories, such as uses and gratifications, attempted to make space for audience choice in our understanding of medium consumption. The NBC News article seems to be framing its discussion of binge-watching within a direct effects understanding of media, an understanding that many media scholars have backed away from, but not necessarily the experts quoted in the article. One expert, Dr. Renee Carr, is quoted as saying, the neuronal pathways that cause heroin and sex addictions are the same as an addiction to binge-watching. Your body does not discriminate against pleasure. It can become addicted to any activity or substance that consistently produces dopamine. While there is research on the way the body physically responds to media consumption, the expert quoted here does not mention that line of work to support her claims. The reporter, in turn, does not seem to push the expert hard enough on how she can make such claims. The role of a reporter is to push a source because a journalist wants to make sure the information they share with their audiences is well-vetted and sound. Instead, the reporter just publishes what the expert says with no qualifications. In this instance, it would seem that the novelty of an expert saying binge-watching can be like using heroin overrides the reportorial impulse to push the expert to explain just how she can know that. That's not to say that every time the news value of novelty or currency, for that matter, propels reporting, that it results in a less-than-critical approach to the topic. But a careful reader, just like a reporter and a statistician, should approach every incredible claim with some healthy skepticism. And quite frankly, the reporter should have reached out to media scholars to weigh in on their story. 
Media scholars with a wide array of interest have been exploring whether the type of direct effects suggested by some of the experts in this article is actually possible. What they found is a bit of a mixed bag, with perhaps the most important thing to know is that most scholars have found that there are generally moderating variables that influence how media affect us. A story which quoted media scholars would have been a bit more even-handed and not as alarmist as this NBC News article at times is. Many of us are concerned with the way our immersion in media affects our mental health and well-being, so it behooves reporters to approach stories about the subject with care and nuance. Review. Binge-watching TV series may have benefits both physiologically and psychologically, though the caution about binging might be warranted. This story cited viewing habits based on a government survey, binge-watching patterns based on an industry study, and impacts of binging based on quotes from behavioral therapists in a professional presentation. However, the reporter did not engage with media study experts who might have helped qualify some of the claims about the direct effects of binge-watching. Binge-watching is a novel experience, and many of us find ourselves engaged in it at times. But journalists, as well as researchers, have to be careful to not allow the novelty of the experiences to wash away the nuance with which they should approach the subject. Stats and Stories Podcasts Scholars have been trying to suss out the relationship between media consumption and emotion for decades. Stats and Stories has featured interviews with a number of scholars exploring this relationship. Comedian and BBC presenter Tamandra Harkness talked with Stats and Stories about using humor to communicate statistical information to broad audiences in episode 157. Jessica Gall Myrick got a lot of attention for her work on cat videos. She talked with Stats and Stories about why watching cat videos might be good for us in episode 41. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter at Stats and Stories, Apple Podcasts, or other places where you find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu or check us out at statsandstories.net. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.